Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope you all had a great weekend. Now, this week I'm in Hawaii on the island of Oahu working with an elementary school. And I'm also doing a few online virtual events, but uh, this is definitely my happy place. And I know I'm not unique when I say that, but I have to say escaping the dreariness of March. I mean, even San Diego last week wasn't that great. Uh, escaping the dreariness of March to Hawaii for a week of work is truly one of those opportunities that comes along that I feel so grateful for. Uh, just a reminder that there is still time to register for one of the upcoming events this spring and summer. Uh, grading from the inside out, the two-day training will be virtual April 5th and 12th, so it starts tomorrow, so there is still a chance to uh, to register for that, or San Antonio face-to-face April 25th and 26th. Uh, Standards-based learning in action will also be in San Antonio April 27th and 28th. And of course, I mentioned that summer conference last week, the annual conference on assessment and grading in Austin, Texas, July 18th through the 20th. That'll be myself, Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stolitz, and Katie White. So all of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links in the show notes for them as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is middle school teacher and podcast co-host Che Cheney. Che and I dig into a number of interesting education topics, and we talk a little bit about the Che and Pav show that he co-hosts with Pav Wander. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about a very important concept in leading a transformation of your assessment and grading practices in your schools, and at the same time, tell you about a new book I have coming out. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Che Cheney is coming up. But first, I want to open this week by exploring a question that I've been reflecting on recently, and it's this. Should you always follow your passion when it comes to making a career choice? This week, I want to invite you to at me because I'd be very interested to hear what some of you think about this particular topic. Now, what I'm referring to here is specifically about career choices, not hobbies that we're already passionate about, right? I think we can all agree that finding your passion from a hobby or a downtime perspective is what we all already do. This is about our careers. Now, most of us likely grew up being given the same advice, and the advice was, of course, when you're choosing a career, follow your passion and the rest will come. And by rest, you know, parents and teachers and others are referring to happiness, money, overall fulfillment, etc. And I told my children that as they were growing up as well. You know, they're now 25 and 22, so they're into adulthood, but that was the advice I gave them when they were younger. But over the last couple of years, I've found myself questioning whether or not this advice is the right advice. And, you know, while I've heard the counter-argument from several people, the primary driver of my questioning this advice is New York University Stern School of Business professor Scott Galloway. I became familiar with Scott Galloway when I subscribed to the podcast Pivot several years ago, which he co-hosts with Kara Swisher. It's sort of a tech-slash-business podcast that I find incredibly compelling because it's about two things that are not really in my wheelhouse. So it's a real learning experience for me in trying to understand sort of the tech world and the business world. He also has a solo podcast called The Prof G Show, and he has a weekly newsletter as well. And so it's not hard to find Scott Galloway content, and I would say that I'm definitely a fan of most of his work. Now, back to the topic at hand. I have heard him say on many occasions that the worst advice we can give young people is to follow their passions. Now, when I first heard him say that, I immediately rejected that idea because, as 
a teacher, an educator, I believe that we should do the opposite, that, that we should help our students find and follow their passions, right? Follow your passion and you'll never work another day in your life, right? But the more I heard him say this, the more it started to make sense. And I could really begin to see his point. His counter advice, not follow your passion, is to figure out what you're good at. Figure out what you're good at, invest the thousands of hours of sweat and focused effort needed to get great at it, and that's going to exponentially increase the quality of your life opportunities and all that lies ahead for you. Now, as I contemplated his advice, it got me thinking about the possibility that people can be passionate about things they're not very good at. And is that always a good thing to pursue that as a career opportunity? Now, Galloway goes on to add that work life and getting really great at something is really hard, which can lead us to questioning whether or not what we thought we were passionate about is truly a passion. And we start to, you know, we follow our passion. It gets really hard. And then we wonder if it's really our passion because we were told, follow your passion and you'll never work another day in your life. But we are definitely working and working hard So we could become maybe a little disillusioned with our so-called passion. Now, one example Galloway often uses is tax law. You know, he asks the question, is anyone really passionate about tax law? Or is it just that tax lawyers are just really, really good at it? That they found an aspect of the law that they have a particular knack for? So, of course, as educators, it's worth asking the question, is it our job to help our students discover their passions? Or is it our job to help them discover their strengths? Now, it's true that sometimes those can be the same thing. But if you had to choose, or if it were clear to you as a teacher that there was a difference between the passion and the talent of a student, or the strengths, what do we do? I mean, we all have some limitation, right? I mean, I love basketball. I still do. And, and, and played at pretty high level in high school. Um, but when I was younger... I could have all the passion I wanted in the world to play professional basketball, but the chances of that happening were slim to none. You know, some of you might say, well, had you invested more time and energy, anything is possible. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if I just decided to to be an NBA player that it would have happened. In my first year teaching in 1991, Steve Nash, who's from Victoria, BC, yes, that's Steve Nash, was a high school senior on the St. Michael's University School's basketball, high school basketball team. So I actually watched Steve Nash play several times throughout the 1991-92 school year. And it was clear he was different. I I, I mean, really different. I mean, at the time, we didn't know he would be a back-to-back NBA MVP kind of different, right? But it was clear after watching him for five minutes that he was an all-timer. And even if his teammates worked as hard as him, I'm not sure they would have reached his level. I'm not sure I could have ever been that good. So I could have all the passion in the world I want for basketball. But does that mean it's just a career path that I get to choose? And of course, there's, you know, limited spots, of course, when you talk about being drafted and all that. I'm not saying that we should artificially put limits on students. But at what point do we help our students find their strengths versus find their passions? To be strength-based, of course, is to highlight the person's strength, but to find strengths means you have to acknowledge that there might be weaknesses because there would have to be that contrast. If everything is a strength, then nothing is, right, in some ways? So we need that contrast to know what I'm strong at so I can counter it with maybe what I'm not so strong at. So on the one hand, we want to be able to tell students that they have an unlimited number of possibilities and that they can be anything they want to be. But on the other hand, is that really true? 
I mean, this is what I'm questioning right now. And again, I'm very interested to hear from what some of you think. And I'm not saying I have a definitive answer to this question. I don't know. This is a think aloud exercise. But I just wanted to share that this is something that I've been thinking about recently. And I want to invite you to let me know what your thoughts are. Does following your passion always lead to happiness? Now, for years, I believed that. And I still kind of want to believe that. But if I'm not very good at that which I'm passionate about, will I still find happiness in that passion? Or will I become disillusioned? Or worse, will I feel misled by the adults who told me to follow my passion and that passion would lead to happiness, etc. But the passion has now become a burden and led to feelings of frustration. Figure out what you're good at. Find your strengths. And be willing to invest the hours it will take to go from good to great. Is that better advice? Is that the advice that increases the life chances and expands opportunities? I I don't know. Is that the more sound advice? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, our strengths and passions are aligned. But what if they're not? What if I'm not good at what I'm passionate about? What then? And again, I'm not advocating we put any predetermined limits on our students, but I do wonder sometimes if we're doing the right thing by advising our students to simply follow their passions rather than define their strengths. So, as I said a couple times, this week I want you to at me. I'd like to hear from you about this topic. You know, when there's a difference between a student's passion and their strengths, what do we do? I still have somewhat of a visceral reaction to the advice of not following your passion, but it's waning, I have to tell you. I'm starting to feel like find your strengths would be a better way of helping students live more fulfilled lives, both now and as they grow into adulthood. Here this week for the interview is Che Cheney. Che is a middle school teacher from Toronto, Ontario. Che is also a coach and also works with students around leadership work as well. He is a passionate ELA teacher and is very much an advocate of his teaching philosophy centering around student agency, student voice, and also a commitment to social justice. Along with his former teaching partner, Pav Wander, Che co-hosts the Che and Pav Show, as well as a live educational music radio show on Voice Ed Radio called The Drive. Basically, Che never sleeps. Uh, che, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Tom, thank you very much. Glad to be here. The secret to not sleeping is three scoops of pre-workout with every meal, and then you find you have an abundance of energy. Possibly not that healthy, but I'm up all the time. <laughs> you you work incredibly hard, and, and you, along with Pav, are, are uh, uh, really uh, you know creating a, a lot of energy around some topics. You have some authentic conversation. I love that. It's great to finally have you here. Uh, you know, you and I have just gotten to know each other over the last year or so, and I've been familiar with your work, of course, through what used to be called the Staff Room Podcast, now the Che and Pav Show. Um, but I, you know, and I'm a subscriber to that podcast and listen to it. Uh, but I'm really glad to have you here and have a chance to chat with you because I, I do appreciate a lot of the reflections that you share uh, on on your show. Um, it, it, you know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Let's let's start, though, with your journey. Now, you you've been in education for uh, 20 plus years uh, and, and you've taught at the same school. So this will be an interesting I've asked this question of other guests. But before we dig into some of the substance of the conversation, maybe highlight for us 
Well, often I ask people, you know, the 20 year journey, what does the resume look like? But you've been in the same school for 20 years. So maybe talk about your journey teaching in the same school and how maybe you have evolved as an educator over the over the arc of your career. Well, Tom, first, I'm glad you didn't ask me to point out my resume first and foremost, because the conversation would have gone down really quickly. (laughs) Um, So I really appreciate that, Sage. You know what? That conversation of 20 years, because in a smaller context of answering this question, I remember early on, there was always this push, don't stay in your school too long, move on, move on, move on. But I think it's certainly in our board that the evolution of teaching or education has changed that the school changes every time a new administration comes in, despite mandates and regulations, everyone brings in their own style of administration, their own style of leadership, and what is their focus and what is their vision. And so I've always argued that I've had plenty of different experiences based on all the different administrators that have walked in into the space, some loving what I'm doing, maybe others not loving what I'm doing. Uh, and then even on a disconnect of our relationship, just what they wanted to do from the school. So I always think a school evolves every time a new administration steps in into the space. So although I've been in the same community for 20 years, I don't necessarily feel that it's all one linear progression, that the school's always been evolving in the same path. It's always gone off in different tangents. And sometimes it's fun to look back and say, we have this program in our school. I remember when this administrator brought this in 17 years ago. I remember when this administrator, this leadership wanted to do this. I remember when we made this uh, SIP team and we decided to focus on these issues. So 20 years, I think, allows me insight to really see how a school evolves and how that evolve can be all over the place. And then how we try to make it some linear progress at the end, but realize there, there was nothing linear about it at all. It always comes and goes in a whim. If I think about my journey of 20 years of teaching, um, it is, I like to think of myself as, as the teacher that wasn't ever expecting or thinking about teaching. I didn't get into teaching as a desire myself. I was good with coaching and working with youth and I was working at camp counselors and it was actually a boss that said, you know what, you've been doing this camp counselor summer camp stuff too long. You're, you're 25 years old. Uh, we need to use this skill set. We need to elevate you. So um, they guided me and pushed me into the teaching profession because they saw a skill set that I didn't totally recognize in myself. And I think a lot of times people's narrative is I did this myself. I did this myself. And I think I'm very aware that I didn't do this myself. People around me saw skills in me that I, I didn't totally pick up on or made the connection of what this would be um, good for. And so I got a lot of support and guidance to jump into teaching. And so I went into teaching a little raw or a little naive as to what teaching would be like, but I had a lot of passion and I had um, lots of successes coaching and building teams and running summer camps. And I used that to dive into, into teaching. And then through 20 years, lots of trials, lots of errors. Um, But uh, the, the theme of uh, who helped, who supported, always aware that there's always people around me that explicitly or maybe sort of behind the scenes have helped guide me and support me and get me to this position now, which is, you know what, um, someone that didn't necessarily ponder or consider themselves a teacher, but people around me pushed me, guided me, supported me and put me in a space where I was able to sort of learn on the fly, build and, and create capacity. And now 20 years later, 20 plus years later, still really excited about growing myself as a teacher to be better in the classroom space. And I think what hasn't changed in that 20 years is my desire to always want to be better and to learn from the people around me and to have the utmost um, respect and gratitude for everyone around me that helps me, whether I directly see that help or not, I know that those supports are, are in place. Yeah. How, so, so how have you, um, I mean, 
this is a very difficult question to answer because I want to try to separate experience. So when we say, how are you different than you were 20 years ago? Obviously you're more experienced. And when you're more experienced, you, you know, the job just becomes, uh, I suppose a little more seamless and, and you have a, a much greater perspective, but if you could try to separate out the experience and maybe just talk about how are you different, maybe in your mindset as an educator, look at your first five years versus the last five years or something like that. How, how have you, what sort of change do you notice in yourself in terms of, of, of your perspective as a teacher? Well, this one for me is an easy one. Um, I relied on, I was very good at compliance teaching. I could, I used to be able to show off that, oh, I can make a class line up by a snap of the finger. Now, I wouldn't even suggest that's good methodologies or pedagogy, but early on in my career, this is what I could do. And, mm -hmm. and then being a, a youthful sort of athletic male, uh, I played into the cool factor. And it, it's all, I always think of it, it's like only Nixon can go to China. 20 years later, I decenter myself as much as I can. I downplay my personality as much as I can. Um, I ultimately want kids to come and want to be in the space that's created, not because of the teacher they have. And early on in my career, very much centered on my personality as the driving force for the learning and could use that coolness to leverage compliance because people wanted to comply because I was the cool teacher. And now I won't even use the vernacular cool. I've completely dropped it because that's not a culture I want to manifest because it's completely exclusive uh, and not inclusive. So. When I think about five years, I would almost I'll put on a Blue Jays hat or something instead of my Yankees hat because I'm just like, oh, what I thought was great teaching, what I thought was really impactful, it hasn't tested, stood the test of time. Where now I'm in a place with the way I'm teaching, whether it works or not, I, I, I truly believe that the pedagogies and the methodologies and uh, centering student lived experiences and trying to decenter myself and make the classroom the star, not a teacher, not an individual, not cult of the individual, has certainly been the biggest shift. So I relied on what I would argue trivial things early on that I was able to get away with which is probably also why I took a little bit of time to, to move away from that. I got away with things that I know other teachers wouldn't have been gifted the opportunity to get away with. And so there's been a, a great journey for myself to, to center the work, center the curriculum. Like I would probably have bashed the curriculum. Oh, I don't need the curriculum. We're now when they talk about, oh, we need to build relationships. Yeah, I got that figured out. Um, but I want to use the curriculum to build relationships. I want the, 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 the learning activities. I want an assessment piece to help foster a positive relationship. Um, and then also realize that building a relationship isn't about me. I don't decide when and how to build a relationship with a student. Students gift me whatever they want to gift me in a relationship. And, and these are thoughts I wouldn't have thought of five years ago. Just too, too much ego although i'm not against ego because i've watched a lot of captain kirk and star trek you know you control your ego it can manifest into great things but early on very ego driven uh, and and very much centered myself and thought my coolness and my personality was enough to drive great learning and and later on no i, I drop that drop as much as that as i can yeah and you you would have had a, a lot of success with that because you do i mean i mean this you have an alluring personality engaging personality and i can see where as a young teacher that might be very reinforcing to kind of say hey this is working for me but it's working maybe for the wrong reasons and so you could still bring that personality to the job and yet be but but be as you say decentered which is interesting to use that term or that concept because you work in a very diverse school is that true that's true right this is true. Yes. So tell us about tell us about your school. 
um, uh, the school, the community is Rexdale in Toronto, exceptionally diverse, uh, not binary diverse, like a truly exceptionally diverse. Um, you, you can't pick, pick one ethnicity or one race or one religion that dominates the space in terms of, of numerical numbers. It's really diverse. And so is the staff. Um, and so as a white male coming from Ottawa, this was new to me. This was part of my naivety, um, totally unaware of the privileges I have and what I could get away with and what I was afforded and gifted. And so when I think of my teaching, that 20-year curve, it's a lot of uh, learning as a, as a teacher. But it's also learning a lot about life, realizing how sheltered you were, realizing when you come into this space, you have a lot to learn. I think back of, of religious symbols or cultural artifacts that students were bringing to school that I would have trivialized or certainly wouldn't have honored. And and realize now just how much my culture dominates the space. So again, it becomes about decentering whiteness because in this community, uh, the community I teach, it, it's not the narrative. It's not the It's not the narrative that's in place. And so it's a lot of personal learning, a lot of personal growth. So when you introduce me as sort of keen on social justice, I would never position myself as a social justice advocate. There's there's other folks that have been doing the work, having the receipts, having the lived experience. I understand when I position my role in it. I'm a white man teaching in a completely racialized community and comes the moral and ethical responsibility to be um, aware of their needs, their lived experiences and adapt to it and support it and honor it and elevate that voice and, and be an ally, be an advocate, be a co-disruptor with them, knowing when my privilege gives me a space to speak up and then also knowing when my privilege hinders their voice from speaking up and how can I support from the side and when do I have to you know, push from behind and so it's been great learning as a human being to be in this space because uh, Tom, sometimes when I dive into other conversations, this, this is my normal. I sometimes when I jump into other schools, talk to other teachers, you know, see their backgrounds, their profiles, I realize other teachers, other teachers, they're not gifted this type of experience. And when you think about social justice work under the umbrella of anti-racist education, we all have foundational principles we believe in and want to attest to. But how does that look in your space? And so it's really important for me to be really open about positioning myself, white male, middle school, completely racialized uh, um, students and a very diverse staff. And so how do I negotiate that space to be part of the social justice solution where if that dynamic is different, then how does it look? Um, you know, there's immediate pushback if I am. Uh, culturally insensitive because everyone around me can put me in my place and rightfully so do it. And then I wonder, what if you're a social justice advocate, but you're dealing with an entirely uh, white community? Like what is the pushback? Where are the challenges? I'm not saying there aren't any, they're just, they're different. So how do you negotiate them? And so to come back to the point about social justice, I, I feel very passionate about it because I feel very um, um, aware of my role and my dynamic in the space, but I would never try to elevate myself and say that I'm a social justice advocate. There's other folks that have done the work uh, and the important work far greater, and I'm learning from them. And I hope one day maybe someone would say I'm a social justice warrior or I'm a disruptor, but I would never anoint myself that that title of I'm a disruptor because I haven't done the work. I don't have the receipts, not in comparison to the folks that, that live this every single day. And even with the best interest, I'm still a white male. I can always disconnect. I have the privilege of being able to disconnect from social justice work if I want it. Not that I want to, but I'm aware that I can. And there's folks that are in the social justice movement that they don't ever get to disconnect. They're always uh, having to be plugged in and, and having the emotional burden to stay plugged in because someone will, will challenge them or question them if they don't. 
And yeah. so uh, passionate about social justice, but I'm not putting myself on the top of any hierarchy as being a social justice advocate. Just really aware, really working hard and hoping that uh, I'm making a small little impact somewhere on the bigger scope of, of, of change in anti-racist education. Such an interesting experience. I mean, you know, you look at Canada and Canada is 70 to 75% white. So we often, you know, as two white males, we don't find ourselves in the position of minority very often. And so you are in this situation, which I think you've mentioned this a couple of times, learning how to navigate through this scenario. So if you were to give your younger self some advice on how to navigate this situation in a way that you think honors the diversity of the school, what, what advice would you give? Or, or if there's a teacher out there who finds themselves in, in this situation and they're trying to say, it's like, how do I do the right work? How do I to be that ally? How do I be that advocate? How do I decenter myself? What's, what's, what's sort of the advice or th- lessons that you've learned from that situation specifically? Well, Tom, uh, you said the key word there is decenter yourself. Uh, as I've always said that before I think I'm going to disrupt anything else, you better disrupt yourself first. And I'm still actively disrupting myself, which becomes like when I talk about dropping vernacular, like cool, or I drop vernacular, like they're my students as a white male in a racialized community. I don't refer to them as my students. I find this is vernacular that needed disruption, the students, the class, our learners, collective growth. Um, it's about, if in my case, the only advice I can give in, in one essence is if you are teachers relying on your personality, I relied on my whiteness to, to I don't even want to say control, but maybe it was just control to creating the culture of, of the classroom space. And it became about using the tools and methodology of great education to foster great relationships. Because of course, relationships is the key to culturally responsive pedagogy, building a quality relationship with your students over time, building trust, uh, understanding that your work you're doing is is moving forward, but you're not gonna get it right, right away. Uh, you have to make a commitment to your students that you're trying to get it right all the time. Uh, even something like calling class boys or girls, I would have said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, years and years ago, but now I've understood that I've got need to disrupt that. So I coach myself in front of my kids, students, class, um, I'm going to stop dropping this vernacular, make sure I'm saying folks all the time. And, and it becomes that co-learning space. So you have to build that trust and you have to be aware to not contest that I'm building a safe space. One of the things I've learned is that I'm in no position to, to, to establish anything as a safe space. I'm the teacher. I'm the white male teacher. Everything is always safe for me. And how am I leveraging students that maybe don't feel safe by telling them, hey, this is a safe space. I actually just further alienate them. It reminds me going to a staff meeting when administrators say, it's a safe space to talk. No, it's not for every teacher. And when you put that pressure on teachers that it's a safe space, you just further alienate. And so I would give back to the, the question. Don't worry, I'm not rambling too much. Is don't, don't assume you've created a safe space despite your personality. Make sure you're really fostering deep relationships through your content. Create content that's meaningful, connecting to them. Read alouds where it's a story that reflects them, that they've had a choice, they've had a voice in, in saying, using music per se when I was writing a biography. I used to always start to tell me a biography about you. So boring. And I've manifested that because in in our school and with middle schoolers, music is such a passion for them. They've always got a TikTok playing or music playing or song or they're humming or they're talking about it. Let's use music. Let's use lyrics to tell your story. And 
the what I was gifted from students, from what they're going through, through an assignment, through a task, through curriculum, through writing, was far greater than me doing get to know you activities at the beginning of the year, where I leveraged on them. Uh, I learned this from Rukia Mohammed, who's a, a great uh, teaching coach in TDSB, that we talk about relationships all the time, but we force students to make a relationship with us. How, you know what, our students are smart every single year. They know, oh, my teacher's going to make a relationship with me in two weeks. And we d are disingenuous in understanding how much pressure we're putting on students all the time to make a relationship for us, not necessarily for them. And so uh, relationship building is key, but it's complex and it's layered. And it, as Tom, a word I got from you in a conversation we had uh, earlier on assessment, it's nuanced. There's no definitive statement on how to make a relationship. It takes time. And as a teacher, you have to be comfortable that not every student wants or needs or is looking for a relationship with you. Um, I can think of one anecdote, and sorry, you can cut me off at any time, where a certain student was a certain student was put in my room because they said, oh, he needs that, that, that male role model. And I said, well, okay. But I knew enough about the student to know that he, he had two older brothers. And so we had a really curt conversation. I said, uh, and an open conversation, and you can have this with middle schoolers. And I said, you know what? I know you've been placed in my room because everyone thinks I'm going to be a, 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 a male role model for you. But I said, I'm not sure you're looking for that from me. And I said, and we're going to have a relationship. And it may be good. And it may be positive. But I said, um, when we talk about this dynamic, I'm not coming here to be your savior. I, I think I'm being positioned to be your savior. And earlier on, I would have jumped on that mantle and wore it like a cape. But now I'm much more mindful of I don't want to be and I can't be a savior. That's not the rightful role in, in mm -hmm. social justice. So I think of that dynamic where earlier on, I would have jumped in to be the savior. And that would have been sort of my early movement towards social justice, centering myself in the, the great work I thought I was doing. And so when I think of that advice, decent yourself, work hard to build relationships, be mindful of what you're leveraging. And so this idea of safe, safe space or you deciding when a relationship is built, they're not for you to decide. And you have to be comfortable that not everyone will deem you to be the creator of a safe space or deem you as the teacher that they want to have that positive relationship with. And then be comfortable that not every student is looking to have a really meaningful relationship with their teacher, a productive one, one in which we still learn and we still grow together. But just be mindful that every student comes to school with, with different lived experiences and wanting something different from that school. And it's not just centering yourself and saying, everyone's going to like me. And because everyone likes me, we're going to have a safe space and get along. And, and because of that, we'll learn far more complex than that. Embrace the complexity there. Yeah. Edit out all the rest and just end with that. <laughs> no, I, I often think about when you have to declare something, it probably isn't so. So if you like a safe space emerges and evolves and happens organically, if you have to declare it, it probably isn't truly a safe space for everybody. As you say, if a principal needs to say it, if a teacher needs to declare it, it, we probably aren't there yet. It's not that it's an unsafe environment, but I think I think you're onto something there. I also want to pivot now to, um, and and I also appreciate you confirming my assertion at the beginning that you are a deep reflective thinker, um, because that, that was that was really fantastic. Uh, but I want to pivot to professional learning here. Uh, oh, to, <laughs> I'll I, pivot I, you. I, oh, I we're gonna play catch. Okay, sorry, got it. <laughs> uh, 
I, I know both from getting to know you personally, but also from the podcast and, and your show that you are a deep thinker about many topics. And, and one of them, of course, is professional learning. This concept of self-driven PD and the idea that teachers take ownership over their professional growth. So what for you is the ideal kind of model? Like, how do you think we find the sweet spot between the needs of the collective? So we've got school goals and the schools working toward achieving those goals. But then there's also the, your, your own professional curiosity that, that has to be nurtured in order for you to f- feel fulfilled as a, as a teacher. So how do you find the, the balance in that? What, what for you is the ideal model for professional learning? Hmm. Now, for me, 20 years in, the ideal model has become self-driven. I, I, I'm in, I, we always talk about self-actualization and then you wonder how well can you really know yourself? Human beings are complex. It's tough for you to know someone else when we barely understand ourselves. But I think I have enough of a grasp of who I am to know where I want to improve upon. So I can take that sort of mantle of where I want to direct my PD. But could I have? 10 years ago? Certainly not. So I don't want to make definitive statements. Uh, this is this is the sweet spot for everyone. Because of course, despite teaching and education being a team journey, it also is a very uh, isolating and uh, personalized experience. And so you want to tap into that. Um, when, I, when I think about PD, I often used to joke that, oh, when we had a coach come in or we had a special PD come in, we're just going to review the latest article on Edutopia. And so I could get ahead of it by just reading the blog or reading the post. Um, and and, and it's, it's erroneous for me to laugh it off because maybe in that particular moment, I didn't need that. But that's not for me to decide who needs what. Um, and so when I think of the journey now, I love to be able to drive my own PD. And I would love to articulate this is what everyone should do. But... Is it valued? Is it honored? Does it get a little frustrating? I'll talk specifically on sort of self-driven PD. Pav and I have committed a lot of time to our own personal growth. Do we see impacts in the classroom? Immediately. So if someone says, well, why do you podcast? Yeah, it's not for the likes and the money. It's because um, in the classroom, I know I have something new. I know I'm refining my craft. I know I'm engaging in the truthful act of reflection and turning it into action and then having the action research right in front of me, students that, that gift me uh, the data on whether what I'm doing or trying to do is actually working. And, and that is of immense growth and I, I love that. But it can also be a little frustrating when you're taking on the journey of professional development on your own because I think a lot of vernacular drops, oh, teachers can do this, teachers can do that. But how much burden should I shoulder or how much toxic productivity am I putting on other people by saying, hey, I'm doing all this learning on my own. You should do the same. You'll see growth. You know, Pav and I have decided to invest hours and hours of extra a week. And, and I don't want to get caught telling people they have to do that also. Um, this has just been something that's given Pav and I great joy and, and growth. Um, and so on that level, you have to decide, you know, What's important for you? Does it give you joy to do these type of things? I think Tim Cavey talked about this recently on one of his blogs or one of his podcasts talked about this idea of, you know, wellness blocking everything out for the weekend. But he actually talked about finding joy, staying connected to his work through the weekend. So we don't want to trivialize um, what people need on that front. So back to that self-driven PD, I love it. I think this is the best place for me to keep going. But I also aware aware it's not necessarily for everyone. It could be perceived as toxic to other people to go forth. And then I would also share there's some frustration with it too. Um, Because 
despite everything being a journey of self-actualization, we do like appreciation. We do like thank yous. We do like acknowledgements for the work. And one thing Pav and I could probably attest to is the appreciation or for the work you do is, is not there. So it, when you're doing that self-driven PD, you really do have to connect you're doing it for yourself and your students because you won't get the support or the acknowledgement that maybe you're looking for. And even if you're not looking for, we all know how much a little acknowledgement just elevates you a little further. So it's a very um, isolating journey to take PD on your own. So Tom, back to your point, does there need to be a shared piece? I do believe there needs to be a shared piece. Our school has done great efforts to try to make shared and a variety of different options. So we have a book study. So we're studying books in the morning. Then you have your, that's sort of your informal PD. And then we have our PD where we're focusing on as a school, let's build a guided reading program and let's cook talk to teachers from middle school to junior to primary to see how we can make this work and how we can have these shared conversations. And so is there a sweet spot? I am sure there is a bliss spot. Have I found it? I'm probably not the best gauge of that because I've gone to the outlier. I've gone hardcore on personalized development and seen great successes, but I wouldn't attest that you have to do it that way. Finding that sweet spot, mm -hmm. it's a personalized journey. And I, and I also, based on your lived experiences and your teaching experience, what is going to benefit you the most? And you, you have to try to find that yourself. And, and we don't want to trivialize how tough it is to actually know who you are. I remember reading a quote said, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. Do we all actually know how we want to be treated? Do we know what pushes us forward? I often hear them an act, oh, take a risk. I actually, I'm not trying to make my students take risks. I don't learn through risk taking. I learn through inspiration. Inspire me with great content. I'm going to learn. Tell me I've got to risk something to learn. And, you know, I sort of shut down a little bit, but that's, a personal journey for me. So when I think about treat others the way to be treated, I often don't use vernacular. Let's take risks because I don't learn through risks. I learn through inspiration. So uh, treat others the way you want to be treated reminds me of this whole journey of self-actualization and how much do we really know ourselves and how much does that dictate how we move forward? Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, that answer because I, I just, I, I think sometimes just finding your way and finding the balance is a really important approach. I think the words always and never get us in trouble in education or in a lot of fields, right? You should always do self-directed PD. You should never do a sit and get like, there are times where you're learning about something and you're brand new at it and it's good to listen to an expert tell you about it and then and then find your way through through your self-growth and all of those things and i think being able to discover who you are what you need as a professional and understanding the balance between here as a school we are working toward this this goal this literacy program or we're trying to raise you know the reading levels or we're trying to intervene here we're trying to look at behavioral support whatever we're doing we have a collective goal but also being able to balance that with the personal and and your own curiosity and your own journey i think sometimes we just we talk in extremes and i think social media has magnified that in mm. terms of the hyperbole but uh a lot of times it's as you use the word and I've used it too as many times as the idea of nuance. There's nuance to our professional growth. And I think there's a place for all of it. And when you find that balance between all of it, I think we're, we're in a really good spot. Um, so well, I want to finish up with, um, you know, I had Pav on the, uh, the, the podcast in November and we talked a little bit about the sort of the, the, the foundation of the podcast, what motivated you and, and the connection that the two of you have you know, that your, your, your show is quite high profile. The two of you are quite high profile. And, um, cause you also do the radio show on voice ed radio presenting workshops. So you, you would be seen as, as fairly high profile in education. So I wonder as an active practitioner, 
as someone who is active, you know, actively full-time job teaching and, and working, you put, you're putting yourself out there. Uh, maybe I'm asking this question inartfully, but, but you, you put yourself out there. What is that like for you as a teacher working in a school, but also carving out this niche, this, this profile for yourself? I know that it's not ego driven, but you're still putting, you're still creating a profile for yourself and putting yourself out there as an active practitioner. What are, what are some of the upsides and downsides of that? Talk, talk, because there may be listeners out there right now thinking to themselves, you know, I'd like to maybe push myself to create a profile or create a following or try to do something, you know, like a podcast or something organic. What, what is that like for you, both positively and negatively? What, what are the upsides and downsides? Well, first, it was a wise decision to have Pav on. Um, that would have been my first round draft choice as well. As I often joke that I am the consequence of you befriending Pav. If you're going to be Pav's friend, by default, I have to be your friend. So I appreciate this invite, but I understand that uh, if I were drafting, I would have picked Pav as the number one draft choice. And it's like, well, who's left to draft? So um, this this is the dynamic, and I love it. Uh, and, of course, all tongue-in-cheek, Tom. All tongue-in-cheek. Of course. Of course. Um, when I think of our journey – I think of being active practitioners and, and it comes to earlier on, I would have been okay with a term like, Oh, we're educators. And I've come to realize, well, what do you, what do you mean by we're educators? It's a good starting point, but what does this mean? What, what are we leveraging or what are we um, trying to mask um, by this? I think about, I, as a teacher, I always want to position myself. What is my position? So I speak openly about being a white male in a racialized community, not because I'm better, because it identifies what my what my experiences are going to be, what am I seeing? And it, and it also identifies what I might not be seeing. I cannot tell you what it's like to be a grade two teacher teaching in an all-white community. So I, I, I'm, I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to know the nuances of it because I don't know it. And sometimes I think of this term when we think about educator, are we just leveraging a title so that we can talk with confidence and position ourselves as an expert on anything every, on anything and everything, education. And so um, Pav and I have really carved out this narrative that we are just two teachers. And we say just because we don't want to center ourselves as superheroes. When I think about a student's growth, it's great to have that one impactful moment where that student gravitates to you. But Pav and I are very comfortable and very confident, especially as grade eight teachers. And Pav's not a, well, she is a grade eight teacher this year. She fluctuates a little bit with her assignments. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing graduation, there's often a lot of fixation on the grade eight teacher. But I've always attested, no, I'm not their graduating teacher. I'm one teacher that they've had from K through eight and, and custodians and principals and office staff and lunch supervisors. This is a manifestation. I'm just a representation at graduation of all the teachers that have done great work all the way through. And so so this just two teachers is, is something we attach ourselves to because we want to honor the fact that a student's growth, we will all have those one anecdotal stories, those one individual stories. But collectively, it's about I, as a grade eight teacher, have the utmost confidence that my grade seven teacher has done wonderful things with those students. And so is a grade six teacher. And so is a grade five teacher. I'm not trying to catch aha moments saying, oh, you haven't ever done this in teaching. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build upon what every other teacher has laid in this foundation of, the, of students' growth. And so coming back to who we are and back to my comment about educators, Pav and I are very clear about where we are in teaching, not because it puts us in a better space, but it, it makes it obvious what we represent. And what Pav and I always think we represent is sort of like um, – as we've had a few teachers talk about, we're, we're an easy access point to talking about all things teaching. 
that can then direct you into other spaces to learn and to grow. So when we think about our content, we're open about being active practitioners, teachers. And in the space of education, there's there's value in learning. The, this is action research. We're providing, I don't want to say we're providing, but I guess if you looked at our content, this is a, a window into what's going on in a middle school classroom. So with our podcast and with our social media, it's not just definitive, you know, grand statements, although we make those and I like making those and Pab edits them for me so they sound really smart. Um, <laughs> but we also make sure, you know, it comes calculated. So we yeah. make sure we pro- we post classwork every day. There's something we're working on in the class so people can see that this is what we're doing. And you know what? Sometimes it's just a chart paper with markers on it. It's not necessarily the greatest thing going on in Jamboard that week. This was just a chart paper activity we did, but you can see the conversations that was going on in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then we try to have, you know, our content and we try to have sort of some, our statements, our philosophies on teaching and it manifests, but it opens up to, we're two teachers. This is what teachers are thinking. This is what teachers are doing. And it's not necessarily right, but, it, but it's open. And so Pav and I have, you know, been celebrated and had some, you know, you want to call it pushback or calling out, which is great because we learned through it. Um, but what we think we curate in this space is a brave space to engage in teacher dialogue. And, and our podcast never claims to be the definitive answer. It always sort of attests to this is a space for conversation in which we can all go off and, and gather some more information. And our insights, they're anecdotal, but we do some, we don't not research our podcast episodes. We read articles, we read blogs, we try to connect those all, but we always end with the idea that we're open for conversation. So our podcast episodes often get blog responses that we highlight because we're not telling you what's going on. We're just sharing you what's going on in our space. How are you connecting with what we're talking about? Where do you see a different perspective? How can we continue to collectively grow? And so we often think of our, of our podcasts and our content as just that it's a access point to what's going on in the classroom. Um, it's a gateway to easy access to a lots of, of rich talking points. And we always think our podcast and content complement something. Uh, Tom, so I'll use yours as an example. We'll talk about assessment one day, but Pav and I aren't assessment experts. What we're expert in is trying to use a variety of different assessments and telling you what was working and not working. And then maybe that will push you to, you know, your content that tends to be more uh, assessment driven, assessment expertise that Pav and I can't offer, but it complements. So you can listen to the action research and then you dive into the content expert to sort of bridge the two. So we always joke that our podcast is not a must listen to episode. The content you find there, you could find anywhere, but we would also make that argument of anyone's content. When we talk about gatekeeping, as soon as you say you have a must listen to episode, I for sure am not going to listen to it. When we talk about our absolutes, again, tongue in cheek, but yeah, yeah. this idea yeah. of, of, of not being a gatekeeper of information, I think is something Pav and I uh, really attest to. And then we've been gifted people that have been very responsive to it because they do feel it is a different type of learning space we want to learn from our peers as you said earlier tom and then other times we know we want to learn from an expert we want to dive into a research text we want to just listen to a read a blog we want to listen to a podcast um we feel in the grand scope of sort of uh educational learning our content can be for you on a personal journey We've had districts that have come in and used certain episodes to to p- do PD on their staff, but ultimately we, we feel our content is a window into teaching. It's an access point into everything that matters to teachers. We hope we touch on everything that matters to teachers, and then it inspires you to go and find additional information, additional learning elsewhere to sort of uh, piece it together and weave it together for that great growth. Um, and Pav and I have been lucky to have a little bit of success. I, I mean, it's it's always a little humbling to say you have got a profile. I think Pav and I's profile, uh, I think it's accessible. 
um, it's middle school teachers, it's male, female, it's racialized white, it, it gives you a little bit of dynamic, it's talking about a racialized community uh, and experiences. And I think that is just a space where people want to come in and, and want to hear and learn about and engage with and share their their ideas. So we don't think we have the the PTI of educational podcast, but we feel <laughs> we have a nice little space uh, that engages um, our audience and is a access point to go off into other spaces. And it, it really goes under the category of it's a collective growth space. Yeah. Love that. Uh, you, uh, you, you, interesting lens through which to examine the word just when you mentioned earlier, you know, that you're just teachers. Cause so often we talk about the opposite of teachers, not using that phrase. We're just teachers, but an interesting lens through which to examine the use of that word listeners PTI stands for, for those of you who aren't sports fans, uh, pardon the interruption is a sports debate show between Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. Uh, it's been on for years and, and certainly they get into heated debate, but uh, the authenticity of the conversations on your show, Chave, very quickly, how do you handle criticism? I want you, if there's, if there's listeners out there thinking, Hey, I'd like to start a podcast or I'd like to, to you know, start putting myself out there more. I know you've been criticized both inside your school community, but also outside. So just very quickly, some advice for people. How do you handle the, the criticism that in inevitably comes your way whenever you try to put yourself out there? What's the best way to navigate through that? I probably haven't mastered that. Um, no one or, has. I don't no. think any of us have mastered that. But but what are some yeah. of the ways that you can now, you know, give some advice to people who are thinking about putting themselves out there? Have your very close circle. So Pav and I are lucky enough that we do the podcast together. And although we have a few interviews, it's predominantly a PTI style show. It's Pav and mm -hmm. I sharing our, our and, and having some debate is to rely on each other and be aware that criticism will come. Attacks will come. I think recently we got called radicals. Uh, and you, and you just sort of like, first it gets you, it does get, get you in the stomach. It gets you all wired, fired up and you have to have that person, or maybe it's a few people that you can, uh, comfortably debrief with, calm yourself down with. And then also, you know, do have those conversations. Cause you know, when you talk about who are your friends, friends are people you can have conversations with that maybe don't just elevate you to say, well, maybe, maybe we didn't say this right. Maybe we weren't trying to articulate that. Maybe this isn't great practice. Uh, and you have to be open to, calmly debriefing and it comes back to a comment I made earlier on disrupting yourself. Um, and then also it, you, 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 you hear the vernacular all the time. You have to have thick skin. You do sort of have to have a little bit of thick skin. You have to decide and, and be mindful. Who is it that's is providing this criticism of you? Are they someone that's in your space? Are they someone that's in your circle? Are they someone that's connected to your content? Um, are they people that come by frequently are they a troll account uh something like that you do have to be you have to pause and just look at at who's providing this criticism of you and then just weigh it against who's providing the support and who sort of support and admiration propels you in the long run you know we always say as i said already in this episode it's about doing it for yourself but if, it, if, if, if it's in a silo and it's silent, it is tough to keep yourself motivated. You can get a little down on that. You do need that the, the validation. Maybe need is the wrong word, but it certainly elevates you to get a little bit of validation, a little bit of affirmation. And, and um, Pav and I hold on to those moments when so-and-so reaches out with a compliment. So you've got to be able to balance or flow, um, take more worth or more stock in, in 
the praise from those that you want praise from or need praise from. Again, these might be the wrong vernacular of want or need, but we all know the value of praise. And, and when it comes from certain voices, like when an administrator praises your work or an administrator shares your work, that that means something. When a teacher comes up to you in the hallway and says, I listened to your episode, that, uh, that really connected with me. That means something. Even if they just say, I listened to your episode, uh, <laughs> whether they agreed with it or not, that means something. Um, and then just trying to be aware of who it is that is giving you sort of criticism or pushback and try to understand their perspective and then try to understand, uh, try to be appreciative of, of where they're coming from. And then you'll probably realize a lot of folks, um, this is what they do. This is what brings them joy in the social media space right, is right. trying to crush people. I think Pav and I have joked about this before that probably the four or five folks that went after us the most early on three years later, one, if they're even still in the social media space, they're still just doing the same thing. And, and it reminds me of often we joke about, or we don't joke about, we talk about, you know, you know who your supporters are when times are tough, but you also know who your supporters are when times are, are good. Who's going to celebrate your accomplishments with you. Who's going to champion what you're doing with you. And it reminds me of, of some of these, I won't no need for names, but you know, when we're off camera, I'll drop all the names, <laughs> but some of those folks three or four years later that Pav and I have been in this experience, they still do the same things. You can just see them floating around. And, yeah. and I make that comment because Pav and I look back and say, three years ago, we didn't tweet the same way. We didn't use Instagram the same way. Our podcast content wasn't the same. We were doing more presentations. We would say we're a little bit more responsive. We've seen our growth. I said, but we're growing. And the folks that were causing us grief three years ago are still spinning I would argue spinning in the same game. And ultimately um, when it comes to social media as a space to grow, are you growing yeah. and, and, and what are you getting out of it? That's making you a better teacher. So in sort of the hindsight of being able to look at the people that gave us a big pushback, we know we had a, a few that were, were, I wouldn't say after us, it's too, too strong a word, but we're pushing back a lot of our content early on. They're, they're nowhere now, but they're still right. doing the same games with other people. And you just want to say, it, it, this tends to be the nature of the beast. Find value in the work you're doing. Find those people that are close to you that you know you can sort of debrief. And as uh, I often joke, if there's nothing going on, uh, I'll, I'll turn on my inner Michael Jordan and I will manifest a problem just to <laughs> propel me further. Right. Right. I like that. Um, it, you, you remind me of an expression that I often try to follow as best as possible, which is if you wouldn't go to that person for advice, then don't give their criticism mm. a second thought. Uh, in terms of their uh, their comments or their their take on that, it's tough. Anybody that says that other people's opinions don't matter is probably not telling the truth. We've just all sort of learned to cope, handle, process, mm -hmm. compartmentalize. Uh, the thick skin is is true. We have to develop that for sure. Okay, two questions as we finish up. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Che, uh, here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction uh, that you want to go. Um, but the question is, educationally speaking. What oh. keeps you up at night? <laughs> um, now, on my self-driven PD, Pav and I keep ourselves up at night often thinking about what we have to accomplish. Are we taking on too much? Um, it, 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 focusing on the goals. So, sure, we have our podcast. We've tried to develop some more writing. We're working on a few writing projects. We're doing a lot more presentations. These have been opportunities gifted to us through the podcast. But it does cause stress and even when you're not working on those projects you're always thinking 
about those projects and it becomes tough to just unwind because even when you're unwinding you're still thinking well i gotta try and sneak in two hours tonight of editing i gotta sneak in you know two hours of, of, of doing some writing here so it, it's taxing on that front now, when it comes to the professionals, well, this, that is the professional. When it comes to the teaching side, one, you could argue, well, can you dedicate all your time to your teaching when you're dedicating your time to this? Well, I would argue that time manifests in the classroom. So I, I can make, it's an investment in my teaching. But is teaching, like, what do I worry about the most? Sometimes I worry about sort of the mundane things that do tend to slow us down, although they have value. So you're writing your report cards, you're worrying about your IEPs, you're making sure your curriculums are meeting your IEPs. When you get into the classroom, sometimes the the, the organic nature of the classroom takes you in different spaces. And sometimes I think about my, my little lesson template I've typed out and I've got my success criteria and I have my learning targets and, and I have my assessment pieces, but then I see the lesson change and then I go back and say, now I got to go back. I want to work back. I don't want to work backwards, but I want to be responsive and go back to those documents and change them up and switch some success criteria. Tom, you talk about this all the time with assessment. Like when I get assessment, I get that data. There's certain data that I'm predicting that's going to guide, but then there's other times that data takes me other places and then do I want to pivot and I do want to pivot actually I want to twirl I want to drop vernacular pivot but then I also want to make sure that the the structural changes that I had in place I go back and, and I change those things around so sometimes I find I teach very organically despite having a template or, or a plan and then I make sure I'm, I'm going back and altering all these things so that conversations we have in the moment and jot notes on the whiteboard etc I go back and change all those foundational pieces so that when students say reference a document that I posted two weeks ago, I'm sure that it's still up to date and current with how the class manifested over the, the two weeks, the changing of activities, the changing of what we want to do. And, and ultimately, a lot of those changes come from students' growth or students, um, their creativity. They've taken an assignment or a task and put it somewhere better than I could have ever envisioned, which is always the greatest part of teaching. But then I want to go back and, and make those foundational changes to my lesson plans and my documents so that it's one it's accessible for students, but it's also documented for myself because in the moment, we always think, well, I'll remember this in two weeks. You're not going to remember it in two weeks. So you've got to go back. And as much as you do a lot of front end planning, I always find the little things that, you know, make me think about and teach. Oh, I got to go back and switch this. I got to go back and switch that. I got to go back and switch this. That maybe isn't totally important in the moment, but I know it's responsive teaching to go back and, and alter some of these things that manifest in the classroom. So it's probably pretty trivial. It's probably not a real sexy teacher answer, but it's, you know, these are the things that they, they think they, weigh you down a little bit because they're not the things you invest your energies in in the immediacy. You give so much energy in the classroom, the vibrancy, the organic twirls and stuff like that, that you also want to make sure you have your structures and your foundations in place and not just relying on the heat of the moment or the, the, the passion of the moment. You want to make sure those go back into sort of your planning and your foundational pieces so that they're there for you to access and for students to access later. The So that is what probably weighs me down at night, making sure I, I'm keeping up with all the, the, the twists and twirls that happen during the day. Yeah. Okay. Last question as we finish up today is about success. And it's a simple question. If a random, Che, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, uh, what's your definition of success personally, professionally, however you want to take this, how would you answer them? One, I'd probably say, excuse me, why are you stopping me in the middle of the street? This is Toronto, <laughs> Tom. This is Toronto. Uh, all tongue-in-cheek. All tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. Um, success, I know what the answer should be. You know, I find personal growth in myself. And, and that's what we want it to be. But, you know, sometimes success is some of those talking pots we've already talked about is that the validation from people around you, the handshake, the congratulations. Sometimes those are moments of success. Um so I want to just say the success 
is say knowing you, we Pav and I put out a great podcast episode, and when we're done recording and Pav's done editing because she does the editing, that's not my my wheelhouse. We go back and say, yeah, we're really proud of this. We feel good about this, and you feel so good that you say you stop looking at your podcast numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you start worried about downloads because you're just so proud of the content. And other times, you know, you record an episode and you're like, oh, what did you think about that? How do you feel about that? Should we should we edit this out? Is it worth editing that? And then you start to, you look at your numbers and are people not going to listen because maybe the content doesn't hit? And so if I, I go the podcasting journey as sort of like the, the snapshot and maybe it's a symbolic reflection of everything. Pav and I are probably would say our success is when we record a, an episode that we feel really good about, that we don't bother to check numbers and see how it's doing on social media. We just feel really good about the content and the conversation and our talking points. Yeah. And, and, and we think that manifests beyond podcasts. So that, that'll be my definition of success with a podcast episode. And that's just a reflection of, of the greater scheme of things. Yeah, it is uh, definitely self-actualized as a podcaster to not look at your download numbers. That's for sure. Uh, Listeners, you can find Che almost everywhere. Uh, You'll find Che on Twitter, both uh, at Mr. C. Cheney, uh, all lowercase, or at Staff Podcast. Even though the name has changed, the Twitter handle is still the same. You'll find on Instagram, it's at Che and Pav. Uh, Facebook and LinkedIn, the Staff Room Podcast, uh, the website, www.cheandpav.com. Che, uh, it was great to have you here. Uh, certainly, I've appreciated getting to know you over the last year or so. Loved having you uh, on the podcast today. Thanks for, so much for doing this. Tom, thank you. Thank you for the invite. And, and now I only need five additional invites to try to catch up to Pav. So we'll have this conversation in a few seconds. I'm playing catch up, but I'm fine playing catch up. Eh? The 77 Yankees, they were down five games in August, so I can still do this. <laughs> well, anything I can do to help facilitate that for you, Che. We'll get you caught up to Pav in no time. Anyway, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to do two things at once. I want to talk about a very important concept in leading a transformation of your assessment and grading practices, and I want to tell you about a new book that I have coming out. I'll tell you about the book, and then I'll tell you why we wrote the book. All right, The book is called Concise Answers to Frequently Asked Questions about Assessment and Grading, and I co-authored this book with Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimmich, Katie White, and J.D. Miller. That book is available now for pre-order. It ships in May. I'll put a link in the show notes to the book if you're interested. But here's the concept. As authors, speakers, and consultants, we get asked questions about assessment and grading all the time. It's constant. Now, the title of the book is pretty self-explanatory. We get asked questions frequently, so we put our heads together, we brainstormed a collective list of questions, and then provided two to four paragraph answers for each of them, right? Concise answers to frequently asked questions. Now, the book is organized around our six assessment tenets. So each chapter is a collection of questions and answers that relate to each of the tenets. So there's a chapter on assessment purpose, assessment architecture, accurate interpretation, instructional agility, communication of assessment results, and student investment. Now, rather than taking a deep dive, this book is about breadth. And there's some advantage to that as we think about the work that many of you are doing with attempting to transform your assessment and grading cultures in your schools. Whenever I get a question from someone, I have this internal voice that immediately tells me, you have about 30 to 60 seconds to answer their question before they start to lose interest. Now, I don't know that that is always the case, but it's kind of what I think about when answering a question. You've got 30 to 60 seconds to give them an answer, 
And then you have to leave some space for them to ask a follow-up or seek clarification or something else. Now, there is, of course, a place for deep dives on a singular topic, and many of us have authored or co-authored books that do just that. There is an effectiveness to that for sure, but there is also a place for efficiency. And often, especially once many are past that sort of why stage and they're looking for more the how, concise is what they're looking for. And concise should not be misunderstood as lacking substance. In each of the answers we provide, we simply cut to the chase with no slow buildup or the clutter of citations. It's not that the book is without citations, because I've talked about that before, but they don't really interfere with the flow of the responses. And we make it very clear in the introduction that that was intentional, that we didn't go citation heavy and encourage readers to, so we, we just said, explore the research further should you need or want to go deeper on that. Now, this is why I always say that investing in your assessment literacy is so important. It's efficient and effective. It's the most efficient and effective professional investment any teacher can make. Because as you grow in the depth and breadth of your understanding of sound assessment practices, your answers to your colleagues and questions will become more concise and more focused, right? They, they, it's, it's often what's needed to help someone push past a perceived barrier that they feel is kind of holding them back. Now, it's our goal with this new book to help you with that sort of conciseness of your responses, if you will, right? And at the same time, kind of grow the depth and breadth of your understanding. That's why I always tell people to practice, especially when the assessment and grading transformation efforts are new to you and or your school. And I think I've said this a few times on the podcast before, uh, but when I began this assessment journey back in the 0304 school year, I used to drive home from work practicing how I would answer questions that either students, parents, or other staff members might pose. Now, what helped was, at the time, I lived in Penticton, British Columbia, and I was the assistant principal of McNichol Park Middle School, which in that first year, 0304, was literally two minutes from where I lived. My commute was two minutes. In the fall of 2004, we moved, so my commute was a little bit longer, um, but it was still a small town, and it was no more than 10 minutes away. So the short commute kind of helped me craft concise answers to the hypothetical questions I thought I might get. I know it's not always possible to be concise because sometimes the answers require context and depth. So when I feel like that's the case, I try to preface my answers with some kind of disclaimer, such as, you know, you get a question and I might say to them, listen, okay, this is going to be a bit of a lengthy answer because there are several options here. Or I might say to them, bear with me for a moment because I need to give some context before I answer the question or something like that. But I try to be as concise as possible in thinking about that 30 to 60 second kind of, of interval before giving them the space to ask me a follow-up question. I tend to feel that a, a shorter kind of back and forth will always be more productive because the person you're responding to asks a follow-up or a, clarify, a clarifying question, and then you can add more depth, right? Think of it as kind of spiraling or layering. As they ask for more clarification, you can add more depth. Uh, maybe not always possible, but I try to do my best to, to kind of stick with that approach, right? The effectiveness of your responses will come from your learning about assessment, the efficiency of your responses will come from practicing. Look, it's not about being mechanical and memorizing responses that can't adjust. They're not lines from a play or a script. Um, and if that's how your answers come across, it's going to feel disingenuous and, and a little too rehearsed. So as I would drive home, not only would I think of different topics that I might get asked about, but I'd also think of different ways the questions might be phrased so that I could weave in the knowledge base and, and start to 
to answer the question, but be attentive to the question itself, right? This is not the the politician strategy where you answer the question you want, not the question you were asked. Like we're not taking that approach. But here's an example of the same question asked in a different way. Somebody might ask me, Tom, why does homework no longer count toward my son's grade? Or someone might ask me, Tom, don't you think it's important for students to practice? Now, with those two questions, you're basically going to say the same thing, but the pathway to get there is going to be a little bit different, right? So in the case, you know, when somebody asks Tom, why does homework no longer count toward my son's grade? You know, I might take the approach of saying things like, you know, we know that some students need longer to learn. Uh, we, we may not always know who did the assignment because it was done at home or done outside of our purview. We weren't witness to it. We can't confirm that the student did it on their own. Things like that, right? But if somebody starts the, to ask the question, Tom, don't you think it's important for students to practice? Well, I'm probably going to begin maybe with a sports analogy where, you know, the idea of practice counts, but it counts toward the preparation and not toward performance and kind of go in that direction. The more I practiced, the more my responses became automatic and natural. So when someone asks you a question, you have a limited amount of time to sort of pique their interest and leave space for them to follow up with you or ask a question of clarification. So it's our hope that concise answers to frequently asked questions about assessment and grading will be a resource that helps you uh, craft more concise answers to make your answers more efficient, yet still effective. And of course, that they become automatic so that your conversations with your colleagues, your parents, and even students can be productive and help bring greater clarity to the efforts that have been undertaken to reform the assessment and grading culture in your school. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you have suggestions for me or feedback about the podcast or questions for Assessment Corner, just send me an email. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring and summer. Next week, my guest will be my friend and colleague, Tony Reibel. Uh, Tony is the author of Small Changes, Big Impact. So that is going to be our focus for the conversation next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.